0: As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. Help us to meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. Then we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. And open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your scriptures. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And we're going to be reading particularly from Mark chapter 12 at verse 13. you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here today. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, you'll find that on page 1079 in many of our Pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. knowing their hypocrisy he said to them why put me to the test bring me a denarius and let me look at it and they brought one and he said to them whose likeness and inscription is this they said to him caesar's jesus said to them render to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god the things that are god's and they marveled at him thus far the reading of god's word May he bless it to us. Um, Well we have about a half hour to talk about this question of uh, what is Caesar's and what is God's. Uh, Do you think we can say everything that needs to be said about this in half an hour? I don't, and I'm the one who has to do the talking, so that's what we're going to go with. No, I mean, this is, this is a very complicated issue. This is an issue that touches on a lot of uh, uh, other subs- subs- uh, subsequent issues in the life of God's people uh, to figure out how best to employ what God says about honoring Him, honoring the governing authorities, and how to work our way through these things, this is a a difficult problem. It's always been a difficult problem because even though God never changes, governments change, situations in the world change, but these questions are always difficult for Christians and it's good for us to remember that, to to approach this question with, I think, the requisite humility. Um, I like what J.C. Ryle said about questions like this. He said, we shall do well to remember that of all questions which have perplexed Christians, None have ever proved so intricate and puzzling as the class of questions which the Pharisees and Herodians put to Jesus. What are the duties of Caesar and what are the duties of God? Where do the rights of the church end and where do the rights of the state begin? What are lawful civil claims and what are lawful spiritual claims? All these are hard knots and deep problems which Christians have often found it difficult to untie and almost impossible to solve. Um, So we should come to this question with a measure of humility, recognizing that we're dealing with difficult questions, Um, but I think we acknowledge that we really can't approach these questions at all if we don't grapple with what Jesus says in this passage, that this is fundamental for thinking through these questions as Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, and so we want to think about this passage. and want to think about its implications in its context and for us. Um, and so we'll consider how Jesus responds to his enemies here. And in this response to his enemies, how he teaches us the way of God for life in the world. Uh, how we are to behave as citizens of heaven, sojourning on earth. Um, and so we want to think about these things. So we see Jesus first, how Jesus escapes their trap. Uh, how Jesus exposes their errors and how Jesus expresses God's will. And that's how we want to think about this passage this morning. Jesus escapes their trap, exposes their errors, and expresses God's will. Uh, We're told right at the beginning by Mark that these religious authorities come to him in order to trap him. Um, They come with a mission, they're sent by other people. And once again, this is a, a group that makes for kind of strange bedfellows. We've seen them before in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians got together. Um, In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we're told the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Um, These are people who we noted at the time don't agree about anything except for their hostility to Jesus. Um, The Herodians, we talked about at the time, really represent uh, the temple authorities, The religious elite in Jerusalem, they were well-connected people, uh, religiously more in line with the Sadducees, who the Pharisees had a lot of difficulties with. So they were sort of the elite, the well-connected in the government, the temple authorities. The Pharisees were much more a movement of the common people. Uh, They were very much anti-government. They were anti-Sadducee, anti-Herod. So these two groups of people don't agree on anything, except that they don't like Jesus because he's a threat to both of them. Um, and so the, the chief priests and the scribes, the people who we saw earlier in chapter 11, verse 27, these are the people, the representatives of the Sanhedrin who are sending Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. And Mark tells, them, tells us explicitly they are coming to trap him. Uh, notice that in verse 13, at the end of verse 13, to trap him in his talk. Um, it's, the, it's the talk, the word of Jesus that has presented the most problems to them. Um, It's the word that Jesus has spoken that has communicated to people his authority, um, his wisdom, the truth that flows from him. And so they've tried to attack his authority without success. They've tried to attack the things he's taught without success. And now they decide, well, maybe we can get him to trap himself in his talk, uh, trap himself in his word. Uh, They're going to try to turn his words against him. Um, And it's important that Mark tells us what their intentions are uh, because if we just had what they say in verse 14 we would have thought they were coming to him as supporters or as fans of what he's doing. Uh, Verse 14 seems very complimentary doesn't it? Um, They came to him and said to him, teacher we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. That sounds like they're fans, if we hadn't been told that they were meaning to try to trap him. um, So Mark is warning us not to believe the way they address Jesus. um, What are they really saying to him? Uh, They're very careful to say, we don't think what you teach is true. Uh, We think you are the kind of teacher who is not swayed by public opinion. Uh, One commentator said, for them, the opposite of truth is not falsehood. The opposite of truth is partiality. Uh, That Jesus doesn't show partiality. He's not swayed by appearances. Um, He's not swayed by the reaction he sees on faces when he talks. Uh, Sometimes as a preacher, you say something and you see that it didn't make sense to people. Um, I remember once preaching when I was a seminary student and there was an older man sitting right in the front of church. He just went... When I said something, I thought, well, I did not make myself clear. I better better take another pass at that, see if I can clear that up. Uh, That's what I think it means by appearances, that you're you're changing what you say based on how you see the audience reacting to what you say. So when they frown, you stay away from that. When they smile, you lean into that. Um, And they're saying, you're not that kind of teacher. Uh, We know that you're not swayed by public opinion, Uh, that what you say, you say. Uh, When you teach about the Word of God, you teach about the Word of God. You're not swayed by what people say. Um, And really, they're saying this not to compliment Jesus, but to try to trap Him. To say, we know you don't duck bad opinions. And then they ask Him a question that is hard to answer in any way that won't upset somebody. Um, And that's their whole point, is to try to set this up, then to say... Now tell us what you think about paying this tax. Now obviously the issue of taxation is never popular. Uh, Mark Twain once said the difference between a tax collector and a taxidermist is the taxidermist only takes your skin. Um, So no one has ever liked taxes, but this was not just a question about taxation in general. This was about a very specific tax that had been imposed relatively recently by the Roman government on the citizens of the Roman province of Judea. Uh, This was a tax that was probably imposed sometime around when Jesus was about 10 or 12 years old. Uh, So this is a relatively recent development in this area to have to pay this tax. Um, But it was a a poll tax or a, a tax on every male in the province of Judea. They all had to pay a tax that went directly to Caesar. And at the time it was hugely unpopular and it actually sparked a revolt among the people. Uh, The revolt was led by Judas the Galilean when they first began taking a census to to take this tax. He said, this is akin to slavery. Uh, This is tyranny. We owe loyalty to God. This is impacting us, our liberty as Jewish citizens. Uh, We're not going to pay it. He led a revolt against the Roman government. Uh, We actually read about that revolution in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, Gamaliel tells us about that revolution when he talks about Judas the Galilean who rose up in the days of the census and drew some of the people after him, drew away some of the people after him. Um, this had sparked a revolution uh, when Jesus was a boy. That revolution was quickly stamped out by the Romans. Uh, the Romans were, were very effective at stamping out re- revolts, um, and he was pretty quickly put down. Um, uh, Gamaliel says that too in Acts 5.37. He perished and all who followed him were scattered. Um, They put it down. But this spirit against this tax, this spirit against... The Roman government imposing a direct tax on the citizens of Judea sparked many other political movements. There remained a group of people that were dedicated to this idea that this was an affront to God's sovereignty, an affront to their liberty, and there were a group of zealots that continued to oppose paying this tax, um, continued to refuse to pay the tax, and they're actually the group of people that the revolt would come in 66 AD that the Romans would put down by destroying Jerusalem. So this was a movement that even though the initial movement had been put down, it was still a very popular movement among the people, Um, a movement of patriots against the tax um, and for the liberty of the people. And so by asking this question, the Pharisees and the Herodians know this is a very sensitive political issue at the time about a demand that Jewish patriots found particularly offensive. Seeing it, as one person said, an affront to the sovereignty of God and an acknowledgement of Caesar's dominion over them. And their essential argument was allegiance to God is incompatible with any kind of submission to Rome. Um, And that was a very popular movement. It was a popular movement connected to this question of taxation. And so when they ask him this question, they're asking him a very emotionally charged political question. They're asking him to weigh in in a way that he pretty much can't say either way without offending someone. And that's really what they're after. That's the trap. They know there's no good way to answer this question without putting Jesus in some kind of problematic situation. Um, Now, again, we see they don't really care about the truth. They don't care what Jesus' opinion is on the tax or whether God really wants them to pay it or not to pay it. They just want Jesus to get himself in trouble. They know that if he says, yes, you need to pay the tax, everyone who thinks that that's against patriotism and against liberty and against the ruling authorities will all see Jesus as a traitor to his people and it will erode his popularity. And the Pharisees and the Herodians will be just happy with that happening. And if Jesus says don't pay the tax, then they'll go report him to the Roman authorities as someone who's trying to incite rebellion and try to get him arrested and maybe killed. So as far as they can see, this is an effective trap. You can't say yes without the people hating you. You can't say no without the Romans hating you. You can't answer either way without getting yourself in trouble. And that's really what they want. and wonderfully, we're told here Jesus knows exactly what they want. Uh, Jesus knows exactly what spirit they're coming to him and how they're asking this question of him. Um, he reveals that he knows exactly where they're coming from in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Why are you trying to entice me to do something wrong? Um, he rightly identifies them as being hypocrites. They are testing him, just as the devil did in the wilderness, put him to the test, just as they've done twice before in Mark 8.11 and Mark 10.2. They're trying to test Jesus, uh, trying to make him stumble. But of course, our Lord will escape the trap, and he'll prove once again the truth of what Job said in Job five twelve to 13 about God That he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And that's what Jesus does here by answering in a way that exposes their errors. That's the first thing Jesus does in answering their question is to expose their errors. How does Jesus answer their questions? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, that's why I gave you this little handout that shows what a Roman denarius would have looked like. Um, it's really the size of about a dime. I have one at home, but I thought it's not gonna do me any good to hold that up and show you from up here um, what that looks like. So this is what that denarius that he brought, that they brought to Jesus would have looked like and what it said on it. Um, and this is how Jesus answers their question. And I think in answering their question this way, he exposes their errors. Uh, the first way he exposes their errors is disproves that theological assertion that people were making, that it was an impossible to obey both God and Caesar. Uh, Jesus is exposing that that is just flatly false. And these teachers of the law should have known that, right? Because going back as far as Joseph, who served under Pharaoh, who was a pagan king, Daniel, who served under many different pagan kings and kingdoms, it's been clear that God's people can serve both God and obey the governing authorities. That should have been clear from God's word. And God's people have been able to do that because they've ultimately recognized that all authority comes from God and comes by his sovereign appointment. Um, Not with absolute authority, but certainly with some delegated authority from God who is king over all. Daniel praises God in Daniel 2.11 as the God who removes kings and sets up kings. That God is the one who is establishing authority. When, when Pilate is talking to Jesus and says, Don't you realize that I have authority to condemn you or release you? Uh, Jesus re- replies to him in John 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Um, and wrote, Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans when he says in Romans 13, 1 and 2, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment." Um, Jesus is saying here that it's completely wrong to say you cannot serve both God and Caesar. Uh, That's completely wrong. That that movement that was abroad in in Judaism, no matter how popular it was, was wrong. Um, That you can do both our Lord's answer shows that they're theologically wrong in asserting that you cannot serve both God and Caesar. You can render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus exposes the theological error of their thinking, but Jesus also wonderfully exposes their political error um, by what he asked them to do, by this demonstration with the coin, um, by saying, bring me a coin, uh, when he says, bring me a coin, they have one. So it, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, oh, so you have Roman money in your pockets. Uh, submitting to Rome is an affront to your liberty, but you're carrying around their cash. Um, it, it's almost as one person said, an ad hominem argument against the Roman government saying, you, know, you, you, you don't really have a problem with the Roman government or you wouldn't be carrying around their coins. Uh, you wouldn't have them in your pockets. You're acting as if submission to Rome or in any way submitting to Rome is an affront to liberty, but you do it when you feel like it. Um, You'll take their coins, you'll take their relatively orderly society that they give you, you'll take their police protection, you'll take their roads, you'll take their courts of justice. Um, You'll submit to them in all sorts of ways. You pay lip service to your liberty and to your concern for God's sovereignty. But what you really resent is the fact that Caesar rules and you don't. Um, You may talk a big game, but you're not actually concerned for God's honor or for the social welfare of your brothers and sisters. It's interesting, when when the historian, the Roman historian Josephus, who was also a Jewish historian, or more a Jewish historian, talking about Roman times, um, when he recounts what happened as a result of this rebellion, that was for Jewish liberty and Jewish patriotism and for the Jewish good and for God's cause. Um, He recounts, this is what it did to the people. He says, all sorts of misfortunes also sprang from these men and the nation was infected with this doctrine to an incredible degree. One violent war came upon us after another and we lost our friends which used to alleviate our pains. There were also very great robberies and murder of our principal men. This was done in pretense indeed for the public welfare, but in reality for the hopes of gain to themselves. Their great many followers filled our civil government with disturbances, then laid the foundations of our future miseries and brought the public to destruction. Isn't that the truth of what Paul said? Those who resist will incur judgment. Um, And what that, that historian was noting was people talked a big game about being interested in in public welfare and doing this for the people and for liberty and for God. But the reality was they did it for themselves. Um, They did it for themselves and they caused all kinds of problems. God's Word clearly teaches we must obey God rather than men. It clearly teaches that. We must obey God rather than men. But we are also reminded that men are sinful and men sometimes claim that their cause is God's cause when it's not God's cause. Um, Who who would do that more than the Pharisees and the Herodians who cared nothing for God's cause, who didn't care anything about rendering to God the things that were God's, but simply just wanted to cause trouble and maintain their own. good and their own advancement. Um, There have often been people who claim to be following God, but really are only following their own wills and their own desires. They claim to be obeying God, but they're not. We need to be on our guard about that. Because if we get this wrong, and think that by not rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, we're somehow serving God, we're not. Uh, P.Y.D. Young, a Reformed theologian, said it is no less than ingratitude to and rebellion against God when we ignore our responsibilities to the civil authorities. Um, And just before 400 A.D., John Chrysostom, who was preaching through uh, Romans and got to Romans 13, said, it is not for the subversion of the commonwealth that Christ introduced his laws, but for the better ordering of it and to teach men not to be taking up unnecessary and unprofitable wars. For the plots that are formed against God's people for the truth's sake are sufficient, and we have no need to be adding temptations that are superfluous and unprofitable." Right, so P.Y. DeYoung, 20th century, Chrysostom in the 390s, uh, J.C. Ryle coming 1400 years after Chrysostom, said, never does the cause of Christ suffer so much as when the devil succeeds in bringing churches into collisions and lawsuits with the civil power. In such collisions, precious time is wasted, energies are misapplied, ministers are drawn off from their proper work, the souls of God's people suffer, and a church's victory often proves only a degree better than defeat. And what the Lord is doing is exposing the errors of the people who are arguing this way to say, you may think you're serving God, you're not. You may think you're espousing God's cause, you're not. Um, and really in doing this, they were doing what Jesus had already accused them of in Mark 7, 6 and 7. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Uh, Jesus is exposing their errors. And then, of course, he expresses God's will. What is God's will for us in these things? How should we properly think about these things? Not follow men into error, but follow what God wants done. And he does that through a demonstration with this denarius. So you have on that little handout... Uh, Jesus refers to the image and the inscription, and so you have on that handout what the image was that was on that coin and what the inscription was was that was on it and This is what Jesus is referring to in verse sixteen. Uh, the image is of Tiberius Julius Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time. Um, I think if I were a Caesar, I'd want someone to work on my nose on the coin. Um, I wouldn't like that very much. I would think if somebody could do better if I were Caesar. But that's an image of him, Tiberius, who was Caesar at the time. Um, He was the, the third after Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and then Tiberius was his stepson and was ruling at the time. Um, this is his denarius. This is the denarius that would have been uh, in use at Jesus' time. That's his image that's on it. And you see the inscription on the denarius shows what his name and titles were. His name was Tiberius, who was called son of the divine Augustus because Caesar Augustus had been deified by the Roman Senate after his death. So Tiberius is the son of the divine Caesar Augustus, um, and he has the titles there, Caesar, who's the ruler or the emperor, Augustus, which really means sort of venerable or revered, and he was also the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest um, of the Roman government. So these are his names and titles inscribed on the coin. Um, and so when, they, when Jesus says, bring me a coin, now whose image and inscription is on it, it's obvious, right? It says right there, you can just read it, um, it's Caesar's that's who it belongs to, um, it's Caesar's. And what Jesus says in answer to that response is both simple, profound, and wonderful. If it's Caesar's, pay it back to Caesar. Um, that's, that's simply what Jesus says, but I think the real genius of it is, in, is really revealed to us in the Greek. Um, Because when they come to Jesus they use the same verb three times. Uh, Shall we pay the tax to Caesar? Do we pay it or do we not pay it? Um, They use that three times. That that word in Greek is didomi. Now you know I don't usually tell you Greek words, um, uh, but I think even if you don't know Greek, you'll be able to see what's going on here. So they say that three times, use that verb three times. Should we give? Should we pay? Uh, three times they say that. When Jesus responds to them, he doesn't say, use the verb didomi. He uses the verb apodidomi. So even if you don't know Greek, you can hear the similarity, can't you? Um, they said didomi, didomi, didomi. He says apodidomi. By changing it a little bit. Um, he changes it from give or pay to give back or pay back. And I think that communicates something of the genius of the response. Do we pay? Well, whose is it? It's Caesar's. Well, then give it back to him. If it's his, give it back to him. Why why would that be a problem? If you acknowledge that it's his, his image is on it, his inscription is on it, give it back to him. Um, You see, there's a genius in that answer, isn't there? Who could take issue with that, as they heard Jesus' answer to that question? But the other part of what Jesus says is also profoundly important to counterbalance that first statement. Um, That which is of Caesar, give back to Caesar, is what Jesus says. And then he says, and that which is of God, give back to God. That which is of God, give back to God. And I think you see that also shows the genius of what Jesus says here, because what the image and inscriptions say about Caesar is not true. Caesar is not the son of the divine Augustus. That is not true. Caesar is not due divine honors. That is not Caesar's due. Um, Tiberius was just a man and was the stepson of a man. He's not entitled to divine honors, nor is he entitled to a divine office. The highest priest, that's what Pontifex Maximus means. It was the highest pagan priestly title in Rome. It's still a title that's used by the Pope today. The highest priest, that's what this title means. And Jesus is saying, Caesar is neither the son of the divine nor is he the high priest. Caesar is not entitled to things that are not his. Render to God the things that are God's. And I think there's a reason the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 17, Jesus said this to them. The name of Jesus has not appeared anywhere else in chapter 12. Um, You might notice that sometimes when I read the text for us in church, like when chapter 12 starts and says, and he began to speak to them in parables, I sometimes say he that is Jesus to remind us who it is that he's speaking because Mark just kind of does that. He did that, he did that. He's been doing that through all of chapter 12. And it wouldn't have been at all confusing in Greek if he had just said, and he said to them, we'd have all known that it was Jesus who was saying these things. But I think the Holy Spirit is doing something intentional by bringing the name of Jesus out again. Who is the one who says, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's? It's Jesus who says that. And who has Mark told us from the beginning that Jesus is? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Tiberius claimed to be the son of the divine Augustus. Jesus is the son of the most high God. He is the true and eternal son of his father in heaven. And Caesar might take on great titles to himself. Caesar, Augustus, Pontifex Maximus. Sounds pretty good even if you don't know Latin. The problem is none of it is true. And none of it compares to the title Christ. Who tells us? which tells us that he is our eternal king and that he is our only high priest. The high priest who by the sacrifice of his one body has delivered us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. The one who speaks these words is greater. The one who speaks these words is true God and who bears the name that's above every name. It's Jesus who speaks and says, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but not the things that aren't Caesar's. You render to God the things that are God's. Which leaves one last question. What do we owe to God? Well, if Caesar is owed the things that bear his image and inscription, that isn't God owed the things that bear his image and inscription? who bears His image in the world? Everyone. We all bear, male and female, the image and likeness of our God. What is He owed? He's owed everyone. And what is He inscribed His name on? It's one of the reasons we sang from Psalm 8. It reminds us that His name is inscribed on the creation. He spoke it all into existence, it all bears his word as it goes forth into the world. So what is owed to God? Everyone and everything. That's what is to be paid back to God. The psalmist knew that. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Paul understood that we owe everyone and everything to God He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're to give God everything that's ours. That's what Jesus' point is here. Caesar is to be given the things that are his, but not the things that are God's. And God is entitled to everything and to everyone. That's what the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get. And it's certainly what they didn't give. And Jesus is making that point. And what God's word wonderfully tells us is that God is a far better kind of king than any earthly ruler. Um, Do you ever feel like you don't get your money back for your taxes? Um, Californians maybe particularly feel that way, that we don't get our money back for our taxes. If... Caesar asked for a coin and God asked for everything, is that a good bargain for us? You see what makes God such a different kind of king is that he says, if you give everything that's yours to me, I'll give you everything that's mine. There's no no earthly ruler who's ever made that bargain, who's ever been willing to do that. But the Lord says, you have to give everything to follow me. You have to give of your life. You have to leave everything else behind, pick up your cross and follow me. You have to lose your life for my sake. You do have to give up everything else to follow Jesus. But the promise is, if you give everything that's yours to follow him, he'll give you everything that's yours, that's his. That's the glorious promise of the New Testament. That by grace through faith, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ which means that everything is ours, Paul makes that explicit in 1 Corinthians 3. All things are ours, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are ours, and we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You leave everything to follow Him, you get everything from Him in return. You see why this is such a wonderful answer to that question, and why even the people that hated Him could only stand and marvel at that answer. As he just slips right out of the trap, speaking the full truth without any evasion, all they can do at the end of verse 17 is marvel at him. We should marvel at him too. But the Lord does not want us to be left there just marveling at him. The Lord wants us to go to him, go to him in faith, go to him in grateful obedience for all that he has done. Let us obey the Lord by doing what he's called us to do, to be the peace-loving, loyal, faithful citizens he wants us to be in the world, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to reserve for God the things that are only God's and pledge our only absolute allegiance always to Christ Jesus our lord who alone is the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god to him be honor and glory forever and ever amen let us pray together our father in heaven we pray that you would help us by your spirit to live according to the command our lord gives that We do desire to serve you in ways that are right and proper but we know that these are difficult knots for us to untie and many ways for us to get them wrong so we pray by your grace you would lead us with wisdom from your word that we would obey you in all things that are not repugnant to your word and to your will that that would include being faithful and loyal subjects where we may obey the governing authorities without disobeying you and lord we pray also for the grace and strength when Civil authorities are asking us to do things that you command us not to do, to have the grace and the wisdom to know between the two and to follow you always in all things. We thank you that you are a God who not only calls us to absolute devotion to you, but who promises your absolute devotion to us in return. Uh, That you are a God who has loved us from before the foundation of the world, who has upheld us with your steadfast love and faithfulness that you never change and therefore we are not consumed and that we find you faithful generation after generation. So help us recognize that you are the only one who should be owed absolute loyalty and allegiance. And may we seek always in everything in how we serve you and how we serve the civil authority to honor and magnify your name alone. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name.